and we are live. Welcome everyone to Connected Learning TV. This is the final webinar in our September series titled Embracing Video Games for Interest-Powered Learning. Uh, my name is Paula Esquadra. I am the Digital Marketing and Communications Manager for Glass Lab, and I'll be your host for today. Uh, throughout this month on Connected Learning TV, we've been diving into really deep conversations and around leveraging video games for high-impact learning. So today, we'll be chatting specifically about some ways that parents can get on board with game-based learning while creating safe spaces of environment and empowerment that allow them to learn alongside their kids. Uh, before we dive into our chat, though, let's go over a couple of really quick details. Uh, to those of you watching live right now, we welcome your comments and questions either via the Twitter hashtag Connected Learning or via the Google Plus event page. Uh, we'll do your best to address. Uh, we'll do our best to address your questions here in the Google Hangout. Uh, we'll also be chatting throughout the month in the Connected Learning Google Plus community and using the same Connected Learning hashtag on Google Plus. Uh, I'd like to give our guests a chance to briefly introduce themselves. Uh, Kurt Squire, would you like to start? Sure. Um, I'm Kurt Squire. I'm a, a co-director of the Games Learning Society Center at the University of Wisconsin Madison and um, a professor in education. Great to have you here. Uh, what interests you about game-based learning? Oh, uh, well, I've been, I guess, I've been uh, kind of working off and on in this for like, almost like 15, 20 years now. Um, my, my main uh, interest, I guess, has always been how, um, if games are kind of, one of my, my core, I guess, drives was, has been that if um, games are kind of the entertainment medium or how we think about interactive media on the computer, um, or one way, or a primary way, then um, a lot of my work's been trying to understand, can you use those for learning, under what conditions can they be used best, and so on. That sounds great. MJ, would you like to go next? Sure. My name is Michael John, or MJ, as Paula calls me, and I'm the game director at Glass Lab, where we uh, make and enable games for learning. And I'm also the father of a 12-year-old girl who loves to play games. Very cool. Vivian, would you like to go next? Hello, I'm Vivian. I'm a Canadian expat living in Switzerland for the moment. Um, I have four children between the ages of 10 and 18. Uh, one girl and three boys. And uh, I'm an educator by profession. Uh, I teach in private international schools. And I just finished a graduate certificate looking at uh, education technology integration in the classroom and then also halfway through a Master's of Science looking at that same thing and I run an after-school coding club so I'm happy to be here. Cool. Very cool. Um, and we have one more uh, guest speaker named Constance. She's the Professor of Education and Game-Based Learning at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. Um, so if she has a chance to join in a bit then we'll give her uh, some time to, to give her an intro. Uh, so without further ado, let's dive in. Uh, so what has been con uh, traditionally considered as powerful learning experiences in the past? Um, anything from making posters to models, uh, like the States Project, um, and how have learning opportunities kind of evolved in the digital era? Well, I can speak to that. Uh, 20 years ago, when I first started in education, the big buzzword was writer's workshop. And I think we're still doing writer's workshop with maybe different names. And at that time, it was really considered authentic learning because kids could write their own stories. And I loved letting my kids write whatever they wanted to write about, science fiction, mystery, whatever. Because I'm a writer, and I wanted, I am excited about writing. And I loved seeing them being excited about writing. And at that time, we would um, publish our stories by using nice colored pens on colored paper and slipping in a binder. 
And then we would love that binder. We would all read it and pass it around, and that was considered pretty amazing back then and quite radical. And now, 20 years later, we still have writers' workshop, but now things are different. Kids are publishing to ebooks and uh, selling them through iTunes, raising money for charity, and becoming really uh, real authors because they have uh, the entire world, uh, global audience for their work. So that's a big change, and all due to technology. <laughs> Yeah, so if you, I mean, if you look back, um, kind of, for, I mean, there's a couple of things, like, I guess all of history, it's, you know, everything is kind of the same, but also everything's different. You know, it's continuity and change. Um, I think the continuity kinds of things you see going back to, like, even the 70s and a lot of the game-based stuff coming out of then is that um, games seem to work most powerfully when they are integrated in an overall kind of learning system, when they work along with um, other media um, they're very good at raising interest in a topic um, and assessing the kind of learning that's happening through games um, is kind of a perennial challenge. Those things are all kind of the same, I think. Um, I think some of the things that have changed is that we now have learning materials, particularly games, that are uh, really um, designed to be tied to standards and work in classrooms and do things like push the boundaries of assessment in ways that we did not have uh, 20 years ago. So I think those are all kind of new themes. And I think uh, hopefully something we'll talk about too is that this will always continue to evolve. So I think that as a generation of kids that grows up like playing Minecraft starts building learning games, they're going to be amazing. So I have kind of a fun story I was thinking about while, while you guys were talking. So, uh, I don't know, last spring uh, my daughter was doing a, a report. She had to do a the classic school report, and it kind of, the way she chose to do it, which she had a little bit of help from, from her dad, kind of encapsulates <laughs> all this stuff, which is, um, first of all, she chose to do a report on uh, important women in the history of uh, computing. So it was Ada Lovelace and uh, Grace Hopper and these kind of uh, pretty remarkable uh, uh, characters. And then she chose to present that through an RPG where the player would wander through a space and meet these characters and they would say a little bit about their lives and what they did uh, around computing. And she built this with uh, a piece of software called RPG Maker. And uh, I had no idea how to use it. And uh, so she used YouTube tutorials to teach herself how to use it, which is this sort of like whole picture of, of how kids can learn using these uh, modern digital tools. Um, that's just so different and new, uh, but completely natural to, to kids. That is phenomenal. Uh, I didn't know that. Uh, <laughs> it's very exciting. So um, you, you've uh, all brought up the idea of like an authentic learning experience and how that has shifted over time, but that game-based learning has always kind of um, been in the continuum of, of curriculum and activities and things like that. Um, so how would you characterize the view of, of using video games for learning from a, from a parent's perspective? Um, and there, has there been a positive shift in the past few years, or is there still a lot of work that has to be done to kind of create an understanding with it? Um, I, I've seen a huge shift. Um, I, um, you know, uh, I mean, among parents and kind of colleagues, I mean, when I started this, I was told it would kind of be the death of my career, even like 12 years ago. Like, oh, you can't go into games and learning. You know, we all know that those are just the violent things. Um, and that's really changed. Um, 
I, I think you could always find pockets of people that were open to it. I mean, SimCity's been used off and on for a long time, uh, mo or Oregon Trail, um, mostly as kind of um, in the back of the classroom kind of concerns. But there, there's always been this, uh, or there had been, a very, I think, a very strong concern that, um, uh, and this, I should say, globally, I think it's very different. We still hear a lot of, a lot of concerns out of East Asia about kind of play being, um, I've heard, I should say, um, out of um, uh, you know play being perhaps antithetical to work or not as serious or video games being one of the things that's wrong with society. Um, I think in different parts of Europe you have very different opinions in different parts. Um, um, and in the States I think there has been a shift though and it's um, I think it's a shift toward trying to engage a generation that is seen as not engaged in schools and then all, I think that's a big part of it. And then I think also a, a general understanding that we need to be, uh, or that there's an opportunity at least, if not need, to um, be embracing technology in different ways, that you know, the school hasn't changed. And you see a lot of that wrapped up in different language around 21st century skills or communication or whatever. But but I think all, all of those have, have pointed toward a friendliness to games, and a lot of that's parents getting older and, um, and getting uh, a, a generation that grew up, like the Nintendo generation having kids and so on. Well, I believe that uh, games have been embraced by teachers since the very beginning. Um, I, I don't know of any teacher that doesn't want to make her classroom or his classroom fun and engaging, and we've been using games. Uh, you know, it might be Hangman to teach spelling. It could be uh, other role plays. I mean, kids get into it. They learn a lot, and it's very engaging. And um, I guess the, the difference or the shift or the tension right now is because uh, we as parents grew up with video games and at that time it was like Tetris or Pac-Man or things that were really high level thinking, just repetitive flappy bird stuff. And so there are some parents that when you think of video games, you, we think of that and we just don't really see how that can be educational. But I think in really recent years that is changing very quickly because, of, well, in my community, um, Coding uh, is becoming uh, a big deal for, for primary school kids, and so teachers really don't know how to code. But uh, there's code.org that's entirely game-based. And so my after-school coding club, uh, kids come and play games for the whole hour, and they're learning to program at the same time. And so parents are really thrilled that the kids are learning to code and engaging, and it's a game-based way and they get badges and things like that. And uh, right now it's an after-school coding club. I think very soon uh, we're going to try to move that into the daytime curriculum. In fact, there's a committee in the International Baccalaureate Program that's trying to rewrite the curriculum to incorporate ideas about tech integration and coding, computational thinking into the curriculum. And the big problem is a lot of teachers, we don't have that background. I wish I had computer science background, but I don't. I'm trying to teach myself. So right now there's that tension that we see the value, but we don't know how to deliver it correctly. And like you said, in another generation when these kids grow up, they'll be amazing different teachers than ourselves, but uh, because of things like code.org and Scratch programming, parents are starting to realize that game-based learning, video games on a screen can be very effective, very engaging, and worthwhile learning experiences. It's something that's kind of interesting to me, following on what Kurt was saying, that you know there is a change, and some of that change is generational, so you do have the, the Nintendo generation being parents and just this kind of core level of comfort with video games and what they really are and can be. Um, 
there's also uh, kind of another wave happening that I'm seeing with like college age kids. I'll call them kids. Um, uh, where you know I was uh, teaching at a university and and talking to those kids about uh, educational games. And they have actually a really positive view of it. They're like, oh, that was one of the best things I did in school was a couple of the games that a lot of times we view as they weren't very good games, um, but they're still thought of fondly. And so when I, when I sort of look forward, uh, you know, into those that group of, that cohort of, of the population going into the workforce and becoming parents themselves, I think that uh, we're going to see even stronger kind of uh, enthusiasm toward games-based learning. Cool. Um, and I'd love to backtrack for a moment on, on Vivian's experiences. So um, you've mentioned the, the coding club, uh, different changes in curriculum. Um, so uh, giving your child's participation in a collaborative Minecraft group earlier this summer, uh, what were some of the skills that you saw them developing uh, and what did they enjoy most? Well, uh, my two boys uh, had quite a lot of experience with Minecraft before they started the Minecraft camp with Pursuitery, and but they did uh, grow a lot through that experience because the server was brand new, and so all of a sudden they were sort of gained some leadership skills because they knew what they were doing uh, more so than a lot of the newbies, and so they were uh, helping new people that never really built on Minecraft and they're also watching for briefers and recording to me and then I would sort of talk to pursuitaries so those were leadership and responsibility roles that uh, were new to them. Um, part of the pursuitary program was they gave the kids certain challenges in Minecraft to, to try to meet and that's different because usually Minecraft is very open play, you know, just do whatever you want, if you want to abandon something halfway you can. Uh, but Pursuitary, you know, encouraged them to, to, to rise up and try some new challenges and so they had to show evidence uh, that, that they met those challenges and that brought them into different areas of, of creating. Uh, before, my, my boys have made music videos and they also made uh, videos about their Minecrafting, but then all of a sudden they decided to make a music video of themselves dancing in Minecraft. So that was a remix, and uh, that was a way of them showing evidence of their learning and uh, by remixing different te technology skills together. And uh, I was really proud of one of my uh, boys, a uh, 10-year-old. He, he decided to make an ad for Pursuitary's second session of Camp Minecraft. It just started in September, and we were trying to you know, get people to join, and he just on his own made an advertisement trailer and said, well, let's put that on to advertise. And I was really proud because of Pursuitary and grateful to them because they put it on their front page to, to advertise uh, for their program. So, yeah, my boys did uh, learn a lot. They got some leadership skills, and they also saw the program more through a, a teacher's eye, a point of view, because me being a teacher, I was helping them with challenges and encouraging them to help the newbies. And then they, they sort of saw it as a from a teacher's point of view, that sometimes it's beneficial to start a project and, and try to finish it for the batch. And so, um, and, and you speak, uh, you spoke to some of the collaborative work uh, as well as the advertising piece, so are, were there any concerns when um, your child was collaborating with others, um, online or offline, um, and how did you deal with the concerns of those? Well, I had very little concerns about the Pursuitary server because uh, they advertised and you could see right away who the moderators and the administrators of the server were, which is quite 
uh, a wonderful thing for me because I see my boys play on Minecraft a lot and I have no idea who owns the server and you see sort of interesting uh, Minecraft handle usernames and interesting conversations in the chat window and so you, you kind of feel a little bit you know worried about what they're up to but for something like Pursuitry and other educational servers where you know people are whitelisted and you know the administrators are you see pictures of them you know who they are that there's someone up there being accountable for what happens on the servers. So that was my entry into Minecraft is that I felt safe to play on there, that no one was going to troll me or swear at me or do those things to me. And so I could experiment and um, yes. So yeah. <laughs> cool. Um, and so and, and linking this to to say how, how educational games are designed um, and how games are designed in general when we're looking for, you know, intended learning outcomes and, and how children in the classroom and out of the classroom are, are benefiting from how video games are evolving over time. Um, is there anything that, that you're looking for as a, as a parent or as a teacher that you would want more transparency in or, or things that you're really excited about as, it's, as assessment itself is evolving? Yeah. Well, that's one big thing I discovered over the summer is that uh, as adults, we're a little bit hung up about wanting evidence for assessment purposes, <laughs> and kids, that's not their priority. And so there were a bunch of challenges where they would earn badges, and honestly, my boys weren't that motivated about getting the badges. They just wanted to play, and if they thought the learning engagements, the challenges were fun, they would do them, and they were all fun, but they weren't really hung up about giving me the evidence or pursuing the evidence. And so my role as a teacher or parent was to encourage them to show the evidence, and I think that is the tension in education is kids are learning, they're, they're getting amazing things that we're not aware of, and they're just not really interested in showing evidence. It's not really important to them. And then as teachers, unless we have evidence, it's hard to justify the time we spent on that activity and to parents. And so where do we sort of find a middle ground where we have to believe that they're learning and trust that they're learning? yet we still have to assess and give some accountability for their time in the classroom and make their parents feel happy if they're paying tuition or the state happy that the taxes that you know they're going towards the education budget so that I can't solve but it was a, a great experience for me to 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 see my boys world to realize that uh, they're not interested in giving me evidence but it doesn't mean that there is no learning yeah, I think Vivian just said all of the challenges <laughs> uh, when it comes to the question that Paula asked. Um, and, you know, it, that's, uh, that's kind of our task in some ways, I think, as, as educational game developers is uh, how do we make sure that, that these products that we're creating aren't just these sort of dark spaces that kids go into uh, where the teacher and the parent don't have any exposure to what's actually going on. Because usually what's going on is really productive and really valuable. Uh, but if uh, if that isn't unlocked, then uh, then it's hard to to really know or justify, or uh, for for them to be helped. You know, if they're they're stuck on something, or uh, to be rewarded if they've really picked something up. And that's that's in many ways the task of of Glass Lab of, of my organization. And we we actually have adopted relatively recently a, a new motto uh, around this, which is to make learning visible. Can we? What can we do in our whole software that we're creating to make that visible to everyone who might want to see it. Um, 
including the student, by the way, uh, to can we give the student a different view on their play experience that wasn't just you won or lost, but actually that you were engaged in these really interesting skills uh, while you were doing it. So yeah, it's it's a big challenge, but I think it's I really think that is that is the frontier. And actually, I think Kurt was kind of referencing that in in the right at the beginning of the conversation. Mm -hmm. Very cool. And so, um, in terms of the the best uh, way to engage in game-based learning uh, from parent, teacher, student, uh, what would you say would be the most crucial, or at least in terms of a, a starting point, uh, especially when we're considering all options in which you can you can learn. Um, everybody learns a different way, be it visually or or having it in their hands or or listening to it. Um, and this kind of leads into the the next question of of um, moderating or controlling or gaining a better understanding of screen time. Uh, when is too much? When's too little? Um, how? What are your thoughts on that? I suppose. Um, well, mine is, um, I guess the, the biggest thing to keep in mind is just the kind of, um, I, would, I would argue is, is really your reason for doing it and what you're trying to accomplish. Um, the, there, um, if you look across kind of the, um, well, I'll tell, tell us a quick story. I'd, I'd asked um, uh, a couple colleagues who are upon the retirement, you know, after like 30 or 40 years of doing science education, you know, what, what did we learn, if anything? And... Um, I've heard two or three people tell me very similar things, which is that oftentimes when you're going to bring an intervention, say, into a classroom, it actually matters far less than you would think what the actual intervention is. Um, and what matters is everyone having a really good shared understanding of what you're trying to accomplish and why and, and what the kind of underlying pedagogical goal is. And um, most often, once you have some sort of agreement between parents, teachers, administration, uh, ideally kids, um, about what you're trying to accomplish and why, then the rest of it to, uh, has a much greater chance of working. Um, and so I think that would be kind of my, my biggest thing, is try to understand, you know, what is, the, what is the core challenge that you're trying to address, both in terms of, you know, students' needs and then pedagogically. And then a lot of it, uh, hopefully, will fall, fall out from there. Um, it's a very non-trivial task, too, by the way. Um, you know, try to get everyone kind of on the same page for for um, what you're trying to do. As a part of that, which I guess is kind of a related thing, is that and th this, this one I think is a little open, a little more open to the future changing, but historically it's really mattered a lot when you use games, what you, kind of how you introduce it and what you do around it. Now that, that do around it, now that could change as new games come out. Um, and as we develop games that in, in, uh, include more and more social context in them and more discussion in the gameplay as a context of play. Um, so that, that could change. But that, that would be the other thing, is just thinking about, you know, what is the overall encompassing kind of activity that they're doing and, and how does that fit into different curricular hooks? I think that's really interesting, Kurt. And it reminds me of when we were doing some early uh, play testing with kids uh, on our modification to SimCity. And we, at the beginning, we bring them in and say, hey, kids, here's SimCity. And then they would play it, and they would give us feedback. And then we would say, with a second group of kids, here's a, a version of SimCity you're going to play in school. Oh. And, and there, the, the, the kids' expectations of the experience changed entirely. Um, and actually, they, were, they would get angry if they felt it wasn't teaching them enough uh, <laughs> it, when we said the latter case. Like, I, I'm not sure what this is teaching me. I'm not sure if I really got enough out of it. Um, wow. it, was really, it was really amazing to see this really very 
very thoughtful educational critique from the kids um, because, <laughs> because they understood the context and yeah. they had an expectation of learning out of that. Uh, it was really interesting. Huh. What did, how, did, how did they define like what they were and weren't learning? This is super curious stuff. Oh, well, um, part of it was some of the things we actually decided not to do. So we, you know, we were had, to, had them do some, some tasks that were around mathematics, and they were sort of, you know, I, I think that this is kind of a stretch to teach me math. But, but, and then they would sort of, you know, go over, but I think I learned something really interesting here about how pollution works, you know, and, uh, and I'd like to tell you about that now. And uh, <laughs> so it, it, was, it, was, it was great, and, you know, they, they totally engaged it as a school tool. Um, and uh, thought of it in that in those terms. And so, in terms of uh, so so that leads to the question then of, of systems thinking and and how these products and, and these uh, tools in the classroom are are kind of being designed. So, uh, would you say that there are similar parallels to how um, like children start to play sports, how they start to you know learn to be part of a dancing team, uh, start playing like other types of games online? Um, are these the types of rules uh, when they're created? Do they do they lead to leadership? Do they lead to behavior change? Um, Vivian, what would you think? Well, um, if I hear you correctly, you're just asking how are you going to get kids interested into using games in. in for educational reasons, is that correct? <laughs> or I guess just um, similar power, uh, so we've all mentioned uh, game-based learning has kind of permeated all throughout how we ourselves learn um, from infancy all the way to when we're still adults. Um, I mean, I personally still use Tetris whenever I'm camping. Uh, so um, the, the question, I guess, is, is of the parallels drawn between game-based learning um, and other activities, um, are there specific types of rules or behaviors that you kind of expect that lead to leadership skills or 21st century skills, things like that? Well, I don't really think there's a huge difference between other games and, and uh, you know, hobbies and using games in education. I think kids try stuff that looks fun and interesting to them, and then if it is fun and interesting, just get more and more into it. So um, I don't see a, a big difference, and I think when you get good at something, you just naturally start to teach other people, hopefully, if you have an empathetic sort of... Uh, personality, when you learn something, you just naturally want to show other people that don't know how to do it, uh, how to do it, and that's where your leadership skills come in, and then uh, in all social contexts, kids do run into problems, they're fighting or arguing, and then they also have to learn to negotiate and compromise, and uh, I don't see there uh, being a big difference between sports and video gaming, educational activities, or, to me, it's just... It's just all childhood stuff, or I don't know, maybe childhood's not the right word, but I don't see them in different boxes, and maybe I'm, that's, I'm more open than maybe a lot of people. I don't put video games in one box and playground games in one box and sports and reading in one box. They're all just uh, fun, enriching activities. You get out of it what you put into it, so, and same for students. So encourage them to go towards the activities that that challenge them and, and 
or have give them rich, engaging experiences and make them feel good about themselves. You know, I th that was something um, I used to write a little bit about in terms of the Civilization series. Um, so one thing that was interesting about that, like the after-school clubs I used to run with Civ, was that you could get kids who were... Um, I, I agree, by the way, that it, it shares a lot in common with those activities, and in some ways, like a multiplayer gaming community also looks a lot like a poker night or something. But, um, but uh, with Civilization, what was interesting was that um, there were kind of two, two, two or three forms of leadership that would emerge. One was organizing gameplay for other activity, other kids, and this is also like tabletop games. I think is very similar. Very similar. Sports is, you know, I think also very similar, taking kind of a leadership role. Um, and then the uh, also a kind of a designing angle as well. And those were relatively, at least when we would, what I would see in kids were oftentimes relative, relatively distinct. Um, but what was also interesting was that playing a game like Civ, unlike those other things, um, meant that they were developing some some forms of academic skills. In this case, again, it was after school and in the context of fun that had direct payoff in their classroom. So they would find things like, oh, I know geography better, better than any of these other kids. And so it started developing a sense of confidence in some of them, not in everybody, but in a, in a substantial portion. Um, that was kind of interesting because they were there just to have fun and like play Civ, and then all of a sudden they find that they pretty much are you know, all set to go in middle school social studies or world geography. And um, so you've mentioned that as as they go through Civ and as they're exploring these these different leadership opportunities and actually self-organizing, um, do you have any thoughts on, on how that'll evolve as as video games evolve? Um, so in terms of how people decide to interact with each other uh, in and outside of the game, uh, do you think that'll that'll translate? Uh, I think so. I mean, I think Minecraft is the best example we have right now. You know, I was trying to set up a server for my seven-year-old, and I'm, you know, going through these documents made by 12-year-old kids about how to administer a server, and I'm like, good God. And, of course, I bet a lot of people have had this where you're cursing and thinking, this is this is what I, in theory, want. I want an open-ended culture where 12-year-olds are teaching me how to play, and I feel like an idiot. But, um, again, I, what I'm really most hopeful about, and we'll see if we get there, is that that generation, so that A, we might be able to start to make some games for learning that are more like Minecraft and less like um, other games, uh, so they're more open-ended, but then also that, um, you know, th those kids who've had formative experiences with that start thinking, well, here's how you should learn science, you know, here, I'll create like a sandbox world where you can run experiments on interacting species or something, and I think as we see more and more... Um, I'm hoping we see, uh, and I think there's signs of it. Something we were talking about, I guess, on the side was that these kids who are I'm seeing who are 19, 20, who are undergrad. This is, seems totally natural to them. I think MJ is saying the same thing. Where they think, well, of course you should be doing that. Why? Like almost like here, you step aside, stop talking, and let me just go make some cool stuff. And I'm, I'm hoping that that generation of developer might um, kind of lead the revolution soon. Yeah, I, I think I was just going to follow to that. And say, you know, what Vivian's doing, teaching kids to code, right? This is this is a this is going to be a big deal. Uh, it kind of already is. I mean, uh, in the UK now, uh, software programming is considered part of the core curriculum, uh, and we'll see how that spreads around the world. Uh, but yeah, so this idea of kids going from being just the consumers of these games to being the creators of these games, uh, which if you are a long-term creator of these games is kind of terrifying, but also amazing. Um, 
uh, I think that's actually a really big shift, and, and it's it's really really exciting. So it's to think like, uh, you know, kids are going to come home and be able to show their parents, hey, look at this game I made, and it's about, you know, it's some new version of the Oregon Trail, right? And that's that's that'll be uh, I think quite a revolution, and um, it's something I'm really looking forward to, and, and it's just really cool to hear stories like Vivian's about teaching these kids through games. How to, how to manipulate software themselves and how to kind of own the computer. The, the big deal for me is the fact that teachers that don't have a computer science background uh, are able to help kids learn to code, and that's because of organizations like Code.org making it completely game-based game and self-directed learning. And I think some of maybe the, the obstacle that we face or parents face in education educators face about game-based learning is not really uh, the game, but the fact that we have a disconnect or we're, we're lacking a, an ability to connect with that world. And so Code.org has stepped in and sort of fixed that problem to help teachers and parents and adults uh, connect with coding, connect with games, connect with what they're doing. And so now we, the kids and I, we, have a, uh, we share a language. But a lot of the maybe skepticism, the fears around game-based learning with video games is that the parents and teachers want to be there, but they aren't there. They don't know how to get there. It seems overwhelming, and that's more of the obstacle to me. So I'm very grateful to things like uh, Scratch programming, Code.org, and uh, for giving uh, adults tools to connect with our kids and have a shared a digital experience, I guess you can call it. I had great fun uh, playing with Scratch with my kids and with uh, uh, Minecraft, playing with them. And I think that's one of the great things that can overcome uh, the obstacles if teachers and parents can play with their kids. Because I was just thinking, you know, we encourage parents always to read with their children, and we see teachers reading to the kids and with the kids, and we love that, and now we need to maybe move to another step where we encourage parents to play uh, on the computer with their kids and teachers to play on the computer with their kids, and then we kind of understand each other and and we kind of break down those, those fears and feelings of inadequacy in, in adults, and so, yeah. And are there any other ways in which parents and educators can also communicate with each other? So going beyond um, like having like a console in your hand or, or having uh, you know just at a mouse click learning something new uh, you can do. Um, is there any other way in which uh, we can collaborate and kind of innovate and learn to to become more comfortable in that process? Well, to me, becoming comfortable is playing with your kids. They're the ones that know everything, <laughs> and they'll teach you, and they'll scold you for being too slow, and then you remember, oh, okay, that's how it feels like when I scold you for being too slow. And so uh, parents are pretty busy. Teachers are busy. We don't really make time or have time to collaborate with each other, but we really don't need to collaborate too much with each other. I think uh, learning from our kids is far more efficient, and uh, if not, uh, we can always go on Twitter and ask someone for help. So, yeah, Twitter's a great place for getting help. <laughs> yeah, one, one of the things that's been really cool, I think, in just, just straight-up mainstream consumer games is uh, a lot of games that can be played cooperatively uh, with kids, even when kids are very young. So Nintendo has done a nice job of this, of uh, 
making what I like to call uh, asymmetrical cooperative, where you know the kid is maybe doing something very simple, like just collecting gems or something. Like Mario Galaxy had this great feature for that. Uh, while the parent is doing something more sophisticated, and then as the kids sort of catch up, and eventually, as Vivian said, surpass you uh, and make you the slow one, uh, there's still plenty that you can do. Um, and I, you know, I'm not—I guess I'm a little bit of a Nintendo fanboy, but like uh, my daughter and I played uh, Kirby's Epic Yarn together uh, in a cooperative mode. It was—it was terrific, and it's just—it's such a great way to, first of all, just to have fun with your kids, <laughs> but also just to see like what what's their thought process and their processes when they're playing games, and how do they go through frustration? How do they go through problem solving? Um, in a way that you're participating in and you're right there with them. Yeah, I totally agree with Vivian on that. And Kurt, have you had any experiences with, with your children in terms of, like, have you played, have you had a chance to play these games with them? How do they respond to frustration? Um, things like that. Um, yeah, where to begin? Um, <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, we, we, um, we play a ton together. Um, and... Um, Oh, I mean, I, I think for me the, the biggest takeaway really is that it, it's more or less verified all of this stuff we've been saying for all these years. Uh, I, um, just in terms of the value of, of co-play, so one thing we know from cognitive science in general is that being engaged in a joint activity with someone who's more able, where you both uh, share a common sense of purpose um, um, and understanding of the task, and you're engaged in the same thing so you can talk about it together with the adult using hopefully more sophisticated language, um, is like one of the best things for learning. And I've been shocked at how readily that happens through games. Um, um, we played like every one of the Lego series. Um, it's got pretty roughly, actually really good co-op, I would say. Good to really good, depending. Um, same with like Skylanders. And um, it's really amazing. Um, I, I think it's, it's amazing what, you, what a parent or older sibling or anyone can do playing with another child in, in all of those titles. And I agree that Nintendo does have these moments that just make you realize that uh, there's some real creative geniuses uh, working with, with some of those mechanics. Um, and again, I think it's, it's one, one of the real challenges, I think, for us in formal education environments is that we do still generally age segregate. So this is one of the issues we've been working with in some of our games, is trying to create games that intentionally would get, say, a graduate student who's studying... Um, the science of um, lakes and watersheds playing in the same game with a 12-year-old, hopefully in a co-op competitive kind of way, so they can be using information they know about the world strategically um, it, it, in a way that is, you know, mapping to the kinds of domain knowledge, things that we want them to know. Um, it's not easy to do, and you realize as you start doing this that schools, to some extent, are created in order to keep the outside world out, everything from legal reasons to fears about um, kids, um, I mean, just, um, you know, being exposed to content. Um, and it's, um, it's really, I think, one of the bigger hurdles to, to, for us to truly um, adopt the ideas of, uh, say, game-based learning. I think in some ways the make, makerspace movement is interesting in that it's tried to build some of those ideas in its core to how um, sites get set up and reproduce themselves and so on. But it's it's one of the real challenges we're trying to take on right now in our games is can we create games that are co-op multiplayer with the idea that it will attract someone who is a more able adult to play with the kid around ideas that are central to the domain. Yeah, that's that's a that's a cool prize. Kurt, as you were talking, I was thinking about, you know, there's there's all these other learning experiences that that we as parents engage in with our kids. So Maybe I take my kid to the 
the California Academy of Sciences or something, and we wander around the museum, and then, you know, I would never just sort of walk out the door and go, huh, right? <laughs> like, we're going we're gonna to talk about it, you know, we're going to say, what did yeah. you think about the alligator? What did you think about that, that butterfly ecosystem or whatever it was that we saw? Um, so why, why would you do the think of games that not the same way? Like, uh, you know, we're going to engage in games together, like this project that you're talking about sounds amazing. And then uh, outside of that, have the opportunity for this really rich conversation um, the, about whatever it is that was going on. You know, the specific to that instance of it, this makes it different from reading a book. Uh, yeah. And, uh, and it's like this really rich learning experience for, for kids and, and sometimes their parents too. Uh, the interesting point I think that, that you raise that is fascinating is um, in terms of your experiences and how, how they are rich experiences and they are really diverse and, and everybody can respond in an amalgam of ways, um, what are, uh, and you've also mentioned the, the risks and concerns with, with having an iterative, real-time, um, you know, immersive gameplay experience in which like anything could theoretically happen, um, and it's very similar to ways in which people engage with each other in just everyday conversation and, and things that kind of happen in their daily lives. Um, how uh, how do you feel that game-based design, game-based learning, will will help um, in terms of like empathy building and, and adaptation to conflict and things like that? Um, can you think of any games off the top of your head that may also be useful as like a starting point for for parents who want to kind of explore this as well? Hmm. Was that to me or is that um? This is to <laughs> that sounds like maybe into Minecraft experience a lot. Yeah, I mean, I think you are starting to see some games that try to do that specifically. Um, we've built two out of our lab that try to do some of that. Um, but I think it's um, it's one of the kinds of things that games can do just by the virtue of being games. You know, and I think Minecraft is Minecraft's a great example, actually. Um, um, but again, it really depends, I think, then on on how do you kind of seed and construct that community so that you get the right kinds of, or the kinds of social interactions and things that, that are that are you ultimately desire, because we all know the other direction that game groups can go. <laughs> I think kids uh, worry less about conflict in games than their parents do. Uh, I see some stuff in the chat window. It just makes my hair turn white sometimes. They ignore it. They know how to deal with it. And I haven't, I mean, uh, parents fear, you know, trolls and bullying. But honestly, I don't think I've ever heard of a child that's been bullied through an online game, like maybe through Facebook or Twitter, but not on an online game situation. And I think kids, at least my kids are, they have a thick skin and they just, a lot of stuff they say to each other they forget about or they ignore a lot of stuff and uh, the conflict I don't see them feeling as conflicted about it as parents and teachers are and I, I think that's because they're exposed to a lot of it while they're playing so um, MJ um, perhaps you can speak to how um, 
kind of Mars Generation 1, Argybot Academy, um, a game that just went live through Glass Lab, um, NASA, and the National Writing Project. Uh, there's there's um, mechanics in which um, people gather evidence to, to make arguments and, and battle using robots. Um, do you um, have any sort of anecdotes to share with how um, children have kind of created their arguments um, and how has that impacted their, their ability to kind of uh, resolve conflict in that sense, or at least identify conflict. Yeah, or create conflict. Uh, so, uh, you know, we, so we, did do, we did this game that you are mentioning. It's a, a Mars Generation 1 Argybot Academy, uh, an iPad game, and it's, it's meant to teach kids how to structure arguments using, like, the, uh, one of the main elements is if you make a claim, you have to have, uh, support that claim with, with valid evidence. And so the game is actually based around that as its core mechanic. And, um, you know, my daughter has been an extensive playtester of that and now uh, is, feels free to challenge my claims about when she should go to bed or take out the trash with uh, absence of valid evidence. And it's, it's been a little bit of a, of a challenge. <laughs> but, um, yeah, I mean, I definitely think uh, what's interesting is, uh, you know, she'll see a comparable situation so somebody says something on television or somebody's making some kind of an argument and she'll say, but that argument doesn't have evidence. And that's just like that game that I played. And so it's really, it's kind of neat to see, uh, you know, and this is like, you know, this is an anecdote of one, right? And we, we're doing research to see it, uh, uh, how, how broadly this works. But um, <clears throat> it definitely it has the opportunity to change the way she views uh, how people are speaking. And, and how, how their arguments are coming together or not coming together and that, whether or not she should consider them credible. Uh, it's it's pretty, pretty powerful and there's something about the game that makes it sticky, that makes it something that she, she kind of can always refer back to in her head. And Kurt, um, do you have any experiences in terms of uh, just, so you, so you mentioned that there's there's a lot of experiences now in which um, they're they're kind of becoming the master, and you setting up a server and having to, to follow very interesting um, direct <laughs> instructions from a twelve year old. Um, do you feel like um, as gaming evolves in the future, um, parents themselves will also have the opportunity to kind of design with their kids? Um, are you are you excited? Are you nervous about anything dealing with that? Is it a black hole? <laughs> oh yeah. Well, I mean, I think you nailed it. I think I'm I'm. Um... I think I would say is that I was much more concerned, you know, if we had had this conversation three years ago or five years ago, I might have been more concerned that that thread of gaming and gaming culture might be dying a little bit. Um, you know, I think particularly as, say, games go from the P have gone from the PC to the console and, you know, modding and even things like, you know, like tabletop games. I would have said this, uh, but... It, Hang with me for a second. You know, like things like tabletop games. Or I was a big mudder. You know, where, where I one of my experiences. Some of you may have heard me talk about was when I would mud as a teacher with my kids, like in the early '90s. And the kids designed a, um, a couple of kids designed an area. One of them turned it in for his classwork, and he had turned in like as a fifth grader, like 65 pages of an area he designed, and the other kids were playing it. And that kind of thread in gaming culture seemed a bit at risk. And then you know, with Minecraft, it feels like everything's kind of blown up and all of those things are kind of alive and well. And I think it's very easy now for me to imagine that happening 
Um, and there's other threads, of course, as well. But I think Minecraft really shown just a giant thread on that, uh, a spotlight on that. Sorry. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think that things like Kodu, uh, Game Star Mechanic, there are other games that are meant to be games where you create games that are great. But I, I think uh, hopefully you're going to see more of that open-ended gaming and um, you know tools for creating mods or modding games um, w on whichever platform um, continue to thrive. So I'm I'm personally really um, encouraged, and I think back to some earlier comments that maybe another in in uh, others have made is that, you know, I think that it does also remind you that, oh, we design games for our kids all of the time. You know, when you're playing tag or you're playing basketball with your kid, you say, all right, well, I'm going to only shoot left-handed, and you try to design an entertaining experience. So I think it is, you know, it's also just a core thread of, of you know, human experience. But, but I do think tools are going that way in, in a very positive uh, way. And so, um, we oh, we are eight minutes from the top of the hour, so I want to provide the opportunity for anybody else who's still listening um, and, and interested in actually like asking a question or providing commentary on everything that's been said so far, um, please feel free to send out your text, uh, your message through the hashtag connected learning or uh, through our Google Plus community. Um, and so as an interesting closing thought perhaps is uh, what can parents of students um, see or need to see or hear in order to accept video games as something that's more than a form of entertainment and another resource or a tool for engagement and for learning? Um, I'm just going to make it really simple. I think people need to hear, come and play with me this game. Spend an hour with them and they'll be convinced. Try Minecraft. Uh, when I'm on Minecraft, it's pretty pathetic, but I see my kids using perimeter and length and area and spatial skills and they just bang, 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 and they just can turn shapes like crazy. and. Yep, spend an hour, come and play with me this game, Minecraft, or Scratch Programming, or Code.org, or some of the peace simulation conflict games. Uh, spend an hour with me, and you'll be convinced. Yeah, I think I think it's pretty hard to top that, Vivian. <laughs> <laughs> you, play, you know, play with your kids. And, and then the other thing is, you know, just sort of expand on that is, you know, so in so many ways, games like learning games are, are an opportunity for for conversation. Um, and if you've played that game and if you've watched this, your kid do this amazing thing, you know, can you say, "Hey, do you realize that you were doing perimeter and area there?" Because that's what you were doing. And uh, that you know, taking it a step further, um, I, you know, kids will be will be probably very glad that you're engaging them on their level uh, and and doing that. Um, the other thing is kind of just to reference what I was saying earlier is I, I think this is also a task uh, that sits uh, on the shoulders of the developers of these software products to say um, we're going to put features into our software that that make it more visible and easier uh, for the the, uh, the teachers but also the parents to see and believe and, and trust what's going on inside the game. And Kurt, do you think that language will kind of evolve over time as, as video games kind of start to become, or, or shifting perceptions of video games as, as beyond forms of entertainment, um, do you think that there's going to be a way in which we can bridge that language gap, um, just learning how to talk about it or, or speak to someone else about it, if not directly play it? Uh, yeah, absolutely. And I think, um, I think to some extent, 
the um, I feel like we maybe crossed that tipping point. Maybe I don't know. I mean, it's 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 t- I guess it's tough to say, and it's always important to remember that there are many different circles out there of influence. But I know in, in Wisconsin, where where this statewide this idea, we were not the first state to embrace this sort of idea. I've, I've I've seen a real shift among educators. You know, we now have a couple hundred teachers we work with, and a lot of parents, and it's more. It's more the exception now when you feel like you have to kind of explain why this would be an idea that works. Um, and I, I think that, you know, it's, you can't really predict the future. But I, I, I do think one thing that I would just keep everyone in mind is that really is there are some signs that it could, that the way that global education is going to move forward in the next, certainly by 10 years, is, is, could, be, could be wildly different than how it is now. Um, um, you know, as we look at digital distribution, digital devices being more ubiquitous, um, and then we look at kind of emergence of global markets um, could lead to some very different sorts of products and niches and learning experiences that you just would not have thought of um, before. You know, when you start looking at like the, the, on the more businessy side, the things that we've been working with, going into you know I guess emerging markets and then bringing some of those ideas back, it's, you start to get some economies of scale that are really unique and could let you do some really interesting things as designers. Oh, what are the interesting things that that you or or MJ Vivian, um, this question to everybody, um, think could be really interesting as those economies of scale kind of expand and grow? Yeah, Kurt, what are you seeing overseas that we should know about? (laughs) (laughs) Are there Uh, any trends that are emerging? Um, uh, well, let's just say I would just say that as as that global market, um, as it, as it as we start to look at things that look like a global market, um, kind of some of the things that we're seeing are that um, you you can start to think about you know even just like say a math game or a physics game, and you look at what the economics are of doing it for certain segments in the U.S. versus global, um, and particularly on mobile devices. Mobile devices is one of the, one of the big ones, um, and um, Games for assessment is a big one. Is a big one that we're seeing a lot of opportunity. You know, it's one thing to try to sell a game for assessment in America on a couple of devices. It's another thing to try to do it. You know, maybe say in, in um, like say China or India, where you, you just the market realities are very different. And then that theoretically could could also just just allow you to bootstrap and then also bring things back to the United States and so on. Um, similarly, though, I think there are other areas that. Um, um, you know, we, our lab's been doing a lot of work in mindfulness and so-called non-academic skills. We've been doing a lot in that, a lot of, again, in assessment, a lot in telemetry, um, work in language learning. I think those are all um, areas I, I would think you're, you're probably going to see. And then computational thinking, as Vivian said, which I think is huge and is another good example where, it's a great example, actually, maybe where the rhetoric is in one place in the United States and it may be in a very different place globally and it, you could see some, some things uh, emerge in different markets. Well, it looks like we have a lot to look forward to. Um, so we're about to hit the top of the hour. Uh, thank you, everybody, for having an amazing conversation. Um, well, to everybody uh, watching in the audience, uh, we'll have a full video recording of this webinar available immediately on www.connectedlearning.tv, as well as other curated content on the way that you can share with your own network. Uh, this wraps up the final webinar of our month-long series, but that doesn't mean our conversations have to end here. Uh, we encourage everyone to keep the energy going uh, by using the Twitter 
hashtag connected learning and by getting involved in the ongoing game-based learning conversations within the connected learning Google Plus community. Um, if you'd like to know about upcoming, one, uh, upcoming webinars or other uh, connected learning highlights, visit www.connectedlearning.tv and sign up for the email newsletter. Uh, thank you again, everybody. Thank you, everyone. Thank you, everyone.